Hello and welcome to the official podcast of Palate Exposure, featuring Alona Thompson, a podcast for those seeking the ultimate in wine, food, and travel. Each week, she interviews winemakers, chefs, celebrities, and a variety of guests that shape the way we enjoy life. Hello, this is Alana Thompson with Palette Exposure, and my guest today is Michael Lazar. I've been looking forward to this conversation. His last occupation was a bar manager um, and whiskey concierge, which we'll get into. That's a really interesting job title. Um, in a few moments here in the conversation, he's been introduced to me as really the, one of the foremost authorities on American whiskey in the United States and possibly the world. So you guys are in for a huge treat. We're recording during COVID, just contextualized. So right now we're pretty much stuck at home still. Um, but Michael certainly has an interesting background. Um, he apparently was a DVD designer at some point and his career yes. clearly went in a different direction. <laughs> Welcome, Michael. <laughs> yeah, well, thank you. Yes, well, yeah, I, I'm one of those people who's had a, a bunch of different careers. So um, fascinating. Yeah, that was that was just the one prior to doing this. So <laughs> well, um, we're gonna go all the way. We want to know everything. I, I always love right. context. Um, so I'm gonna ask you to tell us a little bit about um, your background, really your life story. Like I know that you're from the East Coast, right? Yeah. So tell me like where you were born, how it all began. All right. Well, it's, I think we can do this pretty succinctly. Um, born in um, 1957 in Brooklyn, New York. Um, went to public schools. Um, went to college in upstate New York in Buffalo in 1974. Um, my intent at that point in time was to, um, so I was going to be, I was very interested in marine biology. I was fortunate enough to go to a, a high school that actually had a pretty significant and um, age-appropriate marine biology program. So I had spent um, four years doing that and grew up by the ocean. Um, then um, got to Buffalo and started down the track of getting a degree in biology and then made a pretty significant turn and became, <laughs> I, I became very, very interested in writing and in particular writing poetry, a perfect career choice, of course. And, um, and that's what I did. So I switched off of the sciences, um, got a degree in English, and then was fortunate enough to get um, a position, uh, a, a, um, a seat at a very brand new um, MA program that had started in San Francisco in 1979-1980 at a very small little liberal arts school um, in San Francisco in the mission called New College of California. And it was one of several of these sort of post-60s hippie accredited things that came out of that period. Um, and the, the cool thing about that program was all the people who were teaching there were themselves published, very well-respected um, writers, even though it was not a writing program, <laughs> which was kind of strange. But what we were studying was traditions and history and basically everything besides creative writing that had to do with poetry. So that was an interesting year. And then that transitioned into, I spent a summer planting trees and dawdled doing my thesis. 
and then wound up getting a job in Silicon Valley as a tech writer. So I wrote a lot of um, software manuals and then realized that writing software would be a lot more fun than writing software manuals and um, basically got self-taught with the help of some friends and transitioned into writing software, which I did for well over 10 years. And I did some pretty specialized software, which today I'm, I'm even gonna talk about it really. Um, but it was like a lot of things that I've done, I tend to veer into esoteric edgy parts of it. And that's what I did with software development. Um, and then eventually decided I really wanted to be closer to users. So um, I transitioned out of writing operating system software to writing applications. I got involved in very early video applications. I eventually wound up becoming a manager, a project manager for software development at Adobe, um, which is a whole interesting story. And I spent five years there working on the professional print applications and watched the web kind of come into um, existence and see Adobe scramble with all of that. And then it was time for another change and I decided that I was actually really interested in DVD publishing. So um, that leveraged a lot of interest I had in video. Um, it's, a, <laughs> it's a skill that had a very limited lifetime. Um, the web actually kind of killed it because everyone started streaming video instead of publishing it on silvery little discs. And um, right around that point, so now we're talking about 10 years ago, um, I had a friend who was interested in publishing a book about cocktail culture. And that book's called Left Coast Libations. And I became interested in it for two reasons. One was um, I, thought, I thought the project itself was very interesting. I really didn't know a lot about um, cocktails at that point. I mean, I knew to drink them. Um, but uh, obviously that was right at the very sort of the dawn of um, really the, the renaissance, cocktail renaissance that happened in, in, all around the world where suddenly there was people rediscovered drinks made with fresh ingredients and um, there was all this harmonization with food, which is how I met Scott Beatty, which I'm sure we'll talk about at some point here. And um, I also had a background by that point because of working for Adobe in book publishing. So I knew how to get a book published. And that's not a small thing. I don't know if you've ever had a book published, but you know, someone has to design it. You have, yeah, you, there's all these things you have to do to get a book printed. And I knew how to do all, I mean, I didn't know how to do all the things, but I knew how to manage all the project, all those parts of the project. So with the help of a friend, um, who had the funds to do this, we published this book called Left Coast Libations, which was a, um, a snapshot of then sort of cutting edge or highly popularized um, bartenders all up and down the West Coast. Um, so by, by the time we started this project, there was already these sort of little bifurcations. So New York cocktail culture had a look of its own. So you had bars like Milk and Honey and then West Coast cocktailing really was rooted in food and culinary uh, movements. And part of that is just there was seasonality uh, and availability of things to play with, which, which isn't to say that you couldn't do it in New York, but it was not the aesthetic that they developed there. So as a result of working on the book, I got to meet now in hindsight, 
you know, probably 30, and there were 50 people in the book, but probably 30 of them were names that people would recognize today. Um, a lot of them are bar owners. Um, a lot of them went on to do brand work. Um, a lot of them went on to write books of their own, but it was really this sort of liminal moment. And as part of working on the book, I got to go meet all these people and ask them lots of questions about their drinks. And that's what got me interested in actually getting onto the backside of the bar and getting into bartending. So that kind of takes us to getting to bartending. And then eventually I wind up, I spent some time running a cocktail program. I kind of got that out of my, my system because it's once you, if you ever get to run your own cocktail program, it's like the best thing in the world. You know, you get to, it's your ideas, it's your vision and you're running the show. And I got to do that for three years at a now defunct bar in San Francisco called Hog and Rocks. And during that time, I also got very interested in American whiskey. And that's what set the stage to come to hard water. So. What an unusual road. <laughs> well, it was. Um, I mean, I, I grew up around wine and food in the house. So these weren't foreign things to me. Um, you know, I was, my dad, for whatever reason, got very interested in wine in the, 19, in the, in the mid to late 1960s and decided to buy a fair amount of then <laughs> extraordinarily inexpensive French wines um, that, <laughs> that it's just, he hung on to a whole bunch of stuff and destroyed it in a closet that was too hot. And there was just a day about probably 15 years ago or so where we just dumped it all out. It was all just turned to garbage and vinegar. But, you know, it was Mouton Rothschild and Cheval Blanc and all of this stuff that today is like crazy. But um, I did have an introduction to that. Um, wow. I also worked. <laughs> I was also one summer, actually two summers, I helped. I worked at um, Windows on the World. I actually helped open there in 1976. Um, and that was, right, and that was where Kevin Zraeli got his start um, doing what was then called Cellar in the Sky. And he had an ongoing wine tasting program at, um, at Windows. So there was wine to be drunk um, and there was a lot of food, obviously. So there's a kind of, you know, subcurrent through my life of this food and beverage thing. And it's only really in the last 10 years that I've kind of decided to, you know, to hitch my wagon to that horse. Uh, the horse wow. has run off <laughs> now and the wagon's not moving, but that's yeah. another story. I think everybody's wagon right now is sort of circling the stationary or something. We're in a yeah. in history for sure. So um, does that give you, you got yeah, a pretty- Absolutely. <laughs> no, I, I think it's such a, you know, intense background. I mean, wine aspect of it alone, you start on such a high notes. It's kind of hard to upgrade from there. Um, and yeah. you obviously have so much, you know, just natural curiosity, intellectual curiosity, because you have, you know, given yourself an opportunity to explore things. Um, yeah. A lot of people kind of stick with a career, just, and a lot of us do that because, you know, we may be not secure enough to say, hey, I'm just going to put my eggs in a different basket. But where did that courage came from, like, for you to completely change direction? I don't know. I, 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 don't know. Um, I think 
I've just, it's funny that the shift from technology into um, beverage alcohol to, felt kind of like something I'd just been resisting for a very long time. And I just felt like, well, you know, I don't know. Uh, you hear stories about people who have, I, I mean, you know what I'm going to say, which is there's so many people who are, you know, dilettante or have amateur relationships with food and wine and everyone loves what they do. And they come over to, you know, let's go to Michael's house. He's going to do some great grilling. Michael, why don't you open a restaurant or why don't you da, 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 da. And you know that I had enough counseling to know that that was an insane thing to decide to do. So I didn't. And, you know, I was like, well, I, I, I've seen what happens. It ruins the experience for most people. They, they start out doing something, especially with food and wine uh, and spirits, and they love it. And then they get involved in it, and it's, it's, it's a gut-wrenching business, and people get burned out, um, and people lose lots of money. Um, and I, you know, I resisted for a very long time. And I think at, at, at the point that I made the jump, I think I decided, no, let's just do this, you know. I, I just kind of felt I needed to follow my nose at that point. And, you know, I had enough security fiscally from working in tech to at least step off of the cliff. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> I mean, that, that, that gave me some courage to do that. Um, whether that was a wise decision or not, well, today, of course, it's, you have to wonder. But, um, no, I think it's, you know, I, I've always felt like I want to – just take, let my curiosity take me wherever. And, you know, that's worked out very well. Um, you know, my, I was extremely lucky with the cocktail thing because I got involved in it really at just the right moment. Maybe I was like a year or two off the real edge. I wasn't in my cocktail book. I, I, <laughs> I was looking at those guys, the, the, the people who I interviewed and helped work on their recipes, they were really, they were right in the limelight. Um, I came up behind them a little bit, um, but but catching on to American whiskey, that was an edge that I caught. Mm. And I really saw that coming. Um, and I was very lucky again, because I found some folks who were purchasing whiskey by the barrel for a liquor store in Berkeley that had been there forever and ever and ever that's actually very well known called Ledger's. And for whatever reason, Ed Ledger, whose dad started that liquor store right after Prohibition, I mean, it's been there forever. Um, Ed took a real shine to me and opened the door and invited me to these groups. And what we were doing was, as we were sampling, we were trying barrel samples from some distilleries now that are fairly, I mean, we were buying a lot of whiskey from Four Roses um, and we were buying whiskey, most importantly, from um, a place called um, uh, Kentucky Bourbon Distillers, which is better known as Willet. And Ed was there at the very beginning of that. And so I learned how to buy whiskey by the barrel. And I learned and I created a lot of connections in that business very early on. And then they opened up Hardwater. And I was just like, well, this is, I, this, this is a place for me to work. This is where I could really yeah. sing. Yeah. So. So were you attracted to whiskey as a spirit just personally? Like, is that your proverbial spirit animal? Uh, no, for a long time, I didn't drink any hard liquor. It was always wine. And I collected avidly for years. Um, uh, 
I mean, I, I, you know, I, I had a second, I was one of those people with a second bedroom and an air conditioner. Uh, uh, so I did that. And of course it was a lot more affordable than in a lot of dimensions. Um, and it was all California wine. I pretty much just specialized in that. No, the spirits thing kind of came out because of the cocktails and um, really it was just a, 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 I was just somehow drawn into, into bourbon. And this is before I really got into the, you know, when I transitioned from working at Hogan Rocks to working at Hardwater, I knew a fair amount of that American whiskey, but I had not really dug into all of the resources available to start doing real research on it. And of course, you know, it's a really interesting story. Um, and the relationship of the United States going all the way back to colonial times and alcohol, I mean, it's a hand in glove thing. Um, and there was a ton of stuff to learn and, and look up and a lot of teachers along the way, but also just so many resources. Um, Library of Congress, um, all these documents that are just sitting around. So all it took was basically pulling up the threads and suddenly I could construct a story that a lot of people didn't know offhand. So it was, you know, there was this thing called bottled and bond it was, and what was the history of that? And what was the history of taxation and alcohol in the United States? And every one of these things tied into and made an interesting story for putting a glass of whiskey down in front of someone and saying, well, here's a, here's some rye and let me tell you about it. And I could tell them to varying degrees, lots of things about it. And, and I like teaching. So that really suddenly felt very resonant. Um, so a lot of things came together, I guess, as I'm telling you this, I'm realizing, I think a lot of pieces of things that interested me, a beverage with a story like that, the ability to go do primary research, the, the ability to tell that story to someone one-on-one -on -one or in a small group. Um, I think all of that suddenly starts to coalesce and makes everything comes to in focus at that moment. Wow. So. What a powerful testament, really. I've always believed that the spirits industry would majorly benefit from more education all around. Sure. Yeah, virtually every good master class I went to, I'm not in the industry, but as a media member, I was invited. Um, when you have great sources of information, such as yourself, uh, that knowledge can be passed on and then consumers can be honored, you know, with all that transference and it becomes more than just a consumptive experience. It really becomes a conversation. Well, I mean, one of the things that's, you know, Part of the culture, you know, the cocktail renaissance, whatever you want to, you, whatever way you want to describe that. So now we're going back to mid '90s, um, even a little earlier. If you want to go all the way back to like, you know, so now we were you're in New York and it's the Rainbow Room and you've got um, uh, Joe Baum, one of the one of the restaurant associates, is hired. Um, oh, why am I going to blank on his name now? <laughs> That's terrible. Uh, Dale, Dale DeGroff, Dale DeGroff. And, 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 and at this point in time, you know, cocktails are, are, are really nothing. You know, they're using sweet and sour mix and flavors coming off a gun. And DeGroff gets challenged by Joe Baum 
to learn how to make these old cocktails the way they were made prior to prohibition or might have been made prior to prohibition. And he wants a different, very specific aesthetic around them. He wants, we're not going to use pour spouts. You're going to, it's going to be like being in someone's house and you're going to unscrew the cap or pull the cork out and you're going to make this drink from fresh ingredients and you need to figure out how to get these recipes working again. So Dale DeGroff does that. And so in the course of 15 years or so from the Rainbow Room, it's this period of reconstruction of a lot of information that was kind of slipped away out of the regular consciousness of people drinking cocktails and spirits in the United States. And that was the, you know, prohibition erodes that. It kind of destroys all of that, um, that context. The bartenders, there are most bartenders going to other businesses, which is a whole interesting story all by itself, um, for the 13 years of prohibition, or they go to Europe. Um, and then we come out of prohibition and uh, tastes have changed radically. And all this information is kind of, it's sitting in books, but no one's, it's not a live thing anymore. Um, so you can fast forward that all the way through to today. And what we have is, is we've reconstructed a lot of this, this information, these chains of transmission, but in spirits, especially in the United States, the people who came out of prohibition and became the distillers um, and the people who we think of as most famous in American whiskey distillation, you know, the, uh, Eddie Russell, Jim Rutledge, um, any of a number of the beams, um, these guys are pretty old um, now. And in a lot of ways, unless, or, or already passed away, unless we, um, take active steps to, to keep that information fresh, and in some cases to capture it before it's entirely gone, we will lose all, some of this. I mean, there are projects that have been done. Um, I know the University of Kentucky has an oral history project where they've interviewed lots and lots of people, not only distillers, but people who've been working at the distilleries for most of their adult lives. And so there's an attempt to make sure that this stuff doesn't get lost again, but it, it's pretty fragile. Um, it's not, it's not a given that in 20 years, it can still be here. It has to be done actively. So. That is really kind of worrisome almost. Prohibition just put a giant damper in the wine industry and obviously spirits and cocktails culture. And now that we've restored it to old glory somewhat and beyond to have to lose, go through the process of this loss again, it's unfathomable. I mean, like you, I'm a wine person, but I've gotten into the spirits industry pretty deep, and I love a good cocktail. And a well-made, balanced cocktail, there's so much pleasure in it that I definitely want to preserve it. Yeah, I don't think, I don't think it's in quite the same danger that it was uh, after Prohibition. I mean, that was a particularly kind of grim moment. Um, I think now, just because just of the way we record things, the information won't get lost. But information has to be gotten from places where it hasn't been dug out yet. And, um, you know, I, I, I gave you um, a copy of something I wrote about Four Roses and that doc, that document really focuses a lot on Jim Rutledge, who is the former master distiller. But after I gave it to you, I sat down and for some reason it suddenly occurred to me, he said, you know, I need to add a section about this guy, Al Young, who worked for Jim Rutledge who passed away at Christmas time in 2019. And I had just, just gotten a contact 
with him right before he passed away. I was like, like I was about, I mean, the, one of the gals who worked at Four Roses set up an email introduction and we didn't hear anything back and it was kind of weird. And then of course we found out that he had just died. Um, but now he, he's written a book about Four Roses, but there's probably a ton of stuff that never got written down and that's gone now. So, I mean, maybe because either he didn't write it down or no one thought to, to ask him, um, but everything is kind of like that. There's, there's lots of little nooks and crannies out there. Um, and so it would be good for the next few years to kind of get them all. Um, seriously, it's, it's, not, it's not all written down, which is good for me. Because <laughs> I'm someone who knows how to publish a book. So I would encourage this individual to think about publishing his own book. Well, I've been um, recently, you know, thinking of things to do with my unemployed self. Um, <laughs> I have lots of little sticky notes. Um, I No one has written a set of profiles on the cohort of distillers that um, come up for me when I think about these people. And a lot of them are still around. Um, and some of them aren't, but, but there's enough known about them that we could write a book about some of these profiles could be written. But I think that's not been focused on very much. I think the distilleries have done a lot to do their own corporate histories and write books about their stars. Um, so this book, you know, this books on Jim Beam. This books on, um, you know, Al Young wrote his book on Four Roses. But um, there's a lot of other people whose song has not been sung, um, and there's a lot of really interesting information there um, to be gotten sooner than later. Um, I mean, there could be an entire book written just about the history of Seagram's and all the people that touch through that and pass through that company. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I, I have no doubt that there's many alleys that one can go down and probably, like you said, many tomes could be created. Um, so in my personal hope as a drinker and as a reader that perhaps at some point in the future you will take one of those themes that are near and dear to you, or I realize it's impossible to embrace and unembraceable, but perhaps something that's particularly compelling in your mind and, um, you know, galvanize all this energy and information you've gathered and it'll be quite, quite a treat. I'm sure for many, many people that appreciate whiskey. Um, speaking of appreciation, so you, are clearly a historian in many respects, but you also were on the front lines behind the bar talking directly to consumers. And I'm sure you've met a range from total neophytes to people that are quite knowledgeable and longtime collectors. Um, for a consumer that is really just more whiskey curious than anything, what were your recommendations? How can one really elevate their knowledge and their experience? Um, where do they begin and how do they go about it? Well, so we live at a time when there's, an, uh, you know, there's a lot of fetishization of certain things. You know, um, I always, so I'm going to drop a name because it's inevitable for it to come up, which is, you know, Van Winkle, um, um, which is phenomenal to me because um, the Van Winkles have never been distillers. They've just been um, salespeople. Right. and marketeers and that's not at all a dig it's just there that was the brilliance of all that but but it's a name that people know 
So people will come in, neophytes come in, and often those are reference points, or they read a review of something, and what they're asking about are things that are very allocated and very hard to get, because that was always the case. And hard water was cool because we got a large amount, we, we got good allocations of difficult to find things, and we were able to offer people the opportunity to try things that they probably were not going to get um, a bottle of. Um, very, very likely. And mind you, there are things that are far rarer than the Van Winkle bottles. They actually, I mean, they release those every year. Um, you know, our collection included um, things that were released only once. So, but apart from that, most of the time when someone's new, what I want to show them are things that are very easy to get that might not be a name that they know. Um, but that, and it, but it's going to be approachable and it's going to be within, you know, it's going to be under 50 bucks a bottle for them to buy it. Um, which is a whole weird thing because people get really wrapped around the notion that you're trying to pour them some cheap whiskey as opposed to I'm trying to pour them something that is really good and that they can actually find um, because it's not like some unicorn that's out there and people have different responses to that, but there's a lot of great, I mean, the, the, the big distilleries make a tremendous amount of very good, easy to buy, well-aged whiskey for a good price that you don't have to fight to get. And, and that's really the place to take someone. Um, you know, for me, it's always, it's, the William LaRue Weller releases, which is the same whiskey that's in that Pappy bottle, but for a fraction of the cost. Um, and you can walk into most stores and buy it. Um, some of the products from Heaven Hill, Elijah Craig is an amazingly good whiskey. I mean, I'm not gonna, I don't wanna sit here and, and, and sell you on a pour of whiskey right now, but what I wanna, you asked about well, where would I start someone is I would start someone with these products because they're really good. Um, and there's a revelation in there. If you, if you don't get hung up on having to think that I'm having the rarest thing in the world in front of me, then there's lots of great stuff. Um, and it's everyday deliciousness. <laughs> the conclusion of this interview can be found in the next podcast, already available for your download. Thanks again for tuning in to the official podcast of Pal Exposure, featuring Alona Thompson.